Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. But what I think is really beautiful about this crisis moment is that I think it really melts away a lot of those concerns because you're like, I have to figure out how to make this work. My name is Spree Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. My name is Shubhangi Raj. I'm a third-year software engineering student at University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. I have been part of this amazing women in tech community for a few months now, and this group of women totally amazes me. I am a very strong advocate for diversity and inclusion in technology, and I love the effort that women in tech is taking to bring such passionate people together. If you would like to connect with me and uh, see how we can uplift each other, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm there with the name Shubhangi Raj. I'll be happy to chat. If you too want to connect and collaborate with more incredible women in tech, remember you can go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. Yesterday, I had a really tough time just like motivating, getting out of bed. It was like 7 p.m. And I was just like, "Ah, I'm just done. I can't. Granted, it was a Saturday. But being an entrepreneur, I always, you know, I'm driven by what I do. So even on a Saturday, usually I'm excited and wanting to hustle about. My friend Jacob went on Instagram Live and did this DJ set. And the music was so positive and energizing that it actually inspired me. And I got out of bed and kept on trucking away my organizational goals. And it just made me think how, you know, Jacob didn't know that I was having a tough time motivating to stay on course. And then he did this positive thing that totally impacted me in the direction that I want to go in. And so I want to ask you guys the question, what's one thing that you could do today right now that would positively impact someone else without you knowing it? What's maybe a quote that you could post on social or a story that you could share, or maybe you could even like, well, I was going to say open someone's door, but I know this time and age, we're barely leaving the house. But what is one thing that you could do to be a secretly positive person in someone else's life? Enjoy the next episode. Celebrating women in tech around the world. So excited for our next guest. Yes, coming at us from New York. Welcome, Ada. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So go ahead to kick things off. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. 
My name is Ada Bernier, and I am the founder and CEO of Skillcrush, and we are an online education company that teaches coding and web design. And what makes us a little bit different is that 80% of our audience is women who are looking to make a career change. Okay, first of all, this is exciting for so many reasons. I can't wait to dive into this, but the very first question I want to ask is when was Skillcrush created and why? We founded the company, myself and two co-founders, in 2012. It honestly was a project before that, for probably about a year before that. We had, it was actually, it had a different name um, called Digital Divas. And at that point, it was really a side project, like a just a labor of love, where we were just looking, we were all women in tech, we were all women who had transitioned into tech post-college. And we really just wanted to like spread the good word and be like, this is awesome. It's totally possible to make this transition. And it's really amazing to work in tech once you sort of get over that initial hurdle. And like, we just didn't see anything out in the marketplace where we felt like tech was being spoken about in the way that we felt about it, like that it was creative and collaborative and fun and all these things that I feel like is not necessarily, those are not normally the adjectives that people use when they think about tech, especially if they don't work in the industry. So we had created this project that kind of had different little fingerlings called Digital Divas, and we really hadn't thought about it as a viable business. And then sort of based on kind of market research, inadvertent market research in terms of people just getting really excited about the project. Um, We kind of bumbled our way into realizing that it actually had potential to be a viable business. And in 2012, we incorporated and started the long, slow and steady and often difficult path of actually building up a company. Let's just jump into the meat of it. When you say difficult path, I agree. And I think entrepreneurship is really glorified. I also feel that I was born to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> so what what was difficult? I mean, there's so many difficult things, but like what's one difficult thing that comes to mind for you that you had to overcome? You know, it's funny, like, because I was talking to a bunch of prospective students today about this, and so much of it at the end of the day comes down to confidence, actually, right? Because it's like, one of the things I feel like I've learned about business, there's like a couple of truisms. And one is that business is about business, you know? So I think sometimes you can go in it into business for a lot of different reasons, which is fine. And those reasons can really propel you forward. But fundamentally, you have to understand like, business is about business, which is to say you have to like have customers and revenue and like a value proposition and all those kind of business fundamentals. And the other thing is that it's really that like, you have to, okay. So basically like people talk a lot about business failures and of course, especially with bigger companies, like, you know, what we're dealing with right now, you've got these like huge companies and sure they can kind of like fail in a traditional sense, but especially for smaller companies and startups, I don't really buy into the idea that businesses fail as much as like entrepreneurs decide that they don't want to continue with the business anymore. And sometimes that's a totally rational and completely reasonable and justified decision to make. But I think you kind of like for a long time, I operated with this idea that like at some point I could get like struck by lightning and the business would fail. And that's never actually how it takes place. And in fact, I've been at moments with the business where we literally had negative dollars in the bank account. And it's really just about like, do you want to get up, dust yourself off and like continue on or not? When I came to realize that that was really helpful for me. And I don't know if it like exactly gave me a confidence boost, but it just sort of made me understand that it's not, there's no like external thing that's going to make me fail. It's like, I'm going to decide whether or not I want to keep trying because it is really hard. And what is your why? When you had negative dollars, know the feeling, (laughs) know the reality. Uh, When you had negative dollars, what was your why? What, What got you 
I mean, I'm just going to be really vulnerable and candid. Was it was it out of habit that you couldn't just quit? Or did you have a special why that you're like, no, this is my purpose and I I, I want to rise to this occasion? I think it's it was like a heavy mix of a lot of different things, honestly. So I do think the why is important. So for us, like we do consider ourselves a mission-driven company and our mission is to help women gain the technical skills that they need to enter higher earning and flexible careers. And that why is supremely important and it drives like everything that we do at Crush. I don't think though that it's like quite as simple as like I was so committed to that mission that like I was going to do anything to make it happen. I think that there was also like a big element for me, like this was the first business I'd started. I had started a sort of like a client services company before this. This was the first business where it was a product I was selling directly to customers, which I think is a really, really different thing to do than to sort of get paid by the hour for your services. I think there was just a part of me that was really interested in the challenge of trying of figuring out how to make this work. And that was really motivating for me. So even though, yeah, I just, I was like, I don't know how to do this. And I want to figure it out. And so I'm going to keep trying. And then I think there was a third element too, which is, and I think this is really important. And actually, this is something that the guy who wrote Traction, Gabriel Weinberg, oh writes about gosh, this. reading it now. It is, it is a game changer. It's amazing. Yeah, I wonder if this is in it. I haven't actually read his second edition of the book. I read the one he self-published. So I'm curious if this is in it. But he basically talks about how he feels like a lot of startups give up too early. And that they don't actually have a good, do a good job of ascertaining at the beginning whether or not like people really love their product. So they kind of like give up on ideas if they don't grow fast enough and don't take into like great enough consideration the love of the product that people have or your customers. And I think that was a big part of it for me too. We definitely struggled with all kinds of like financial challenges early on. And I mean, honestly, throughout, it doesn't really go away. In fact, like often the problems become bigger, the more money you're making. Um, But like the students really loved the product and were like really devoted. And A, that was motivating for me just because it was fun to talk to them. And I was like, this is great. But B, like, I think that was always like, that part always felt like it was positive. So it's like the, the rest of the stuff felt like it was just like, stuff I needed to figure out. I read this blog post actually this morning. I randomly woke up at 5.30 in the morning. I used to wake up at 5.30 all the time pre-COVID, but then during COVID, I'm more on that like 7 a.m. sleeping schedule. Anyway, I woke up early this morning. I find this blog post of the co-founder of Superhuman. And I think it was in the blog by First Round Capital, I think. We'll try to include it in the show notes if I remember after the interview. And he talks about how he broke down product market fit to a science And that there is another entrepreneur out there. Um, I think it was the growth hacker who built up Dropbox and other companies. It may be the person who coined the term growth hacker. I don't remember the name. And he was saying that like you have the right product market fit when you have, I believe it's over 40% of your customers are like raving fans of your, of your product. And the ones that are disappointed should kind of be discarded and not in a bad way, but they're not your core customers. And to really find out like what is working for the people who are excited of your product and then get that excited category to above 40%. And then that's how you 
build a profitable company, essentially. So I think it's really interesting that you're talking about product market fit and like when to give up and when not to give up, because I think some people may feel like it's not working in the beginning. But if you do have those excited customers, maybe what's not working is that you're not focusing enough on the features that those excited customers are excited about and like scaling up that particular side of the company and letting go of some of the stuff that maybe isn't that important to anyone. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do want to give the caveat that my analysis was in no way that uh, scientific at the time. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and a lot of this has to do with external circumstances, too. Like, I was lucky that I started the company relatively young when I had very few responsibilities. And I had a wonderful boyfriend who is now my husband who was very supportive of the whole thing. And I have a really like a story that I love to tell about the time I almost quit. I was really close to quitting and shutting the business down. And the reason I didn't was I had just hired someone full time. And I literally, at this point, both of my co-founders had quit. And I was like, do I need to, should I keep doing this? I'm totally burnt out. It's exhausting, like yada, yada, yada. And I called one of the co-founders and was like, I'm going to, I'm going to throw in the towel. I can't do this anymore. And she was like, I totally understand. You lasted like nine more months than I did. Like, you know, no shame in that game. But hey, like, so when are you going to tell Emily, who was the first full-time hire I had made? And I was like, tell Emily. I can't tell Emily. She just left her job. And then I, I joked that I literally checked out of quitting. Then I didn't quit. And then here And here are. you are years later. <laughs> yeah. Um. Walk us through, but I have so many more questions for you. But before I do, walk us through just like visually, like what is Skill Crush? Like who does it target? What's, what is the experience I'd have with it as a customer? So we're an online education company. So it's online classes. In terms of who we target, the majority of our audience, like I said earlier, is women. Um, and it's specifically women who are early to mid-career looking to make a career transition into technology fields. So by and large, our students tend to be women who are coming out of sort of like administrative assistant roles or any, or teachers. I mean, they kind of run the gamut, but by and large, they're women who sort of have gotten to a point in their career where they don't see a lot of upward mobility on the track that they're on and they want to make a transition. And there's, you know, a million things that we all probably already know about what makes tech really attractive, not to mention sort of like the flexibility and the opportunity to do things like remote work and stuff like that. And so they come to us and they need to learn the need to learn skills in order to be, you know, employable. And so we teach all web development and web design skills and digital marketing. If it's something that's for you, we have a really amazing free coding camp that basically gives you a little bit of a taste of how our lessons are, what it's like, what it's like to learn to code with us. And you can try it for free. And where can they find that? At skillcrush.com? Exactly. Just go to skillcrush.com and you'll see there's a big button. This is free coding camp. Did you build the platform yourself or do you utilize another teaching software in order to host the courses? By and large, we built it ourselves, but of course, like we take advantage of sort of existing plugins and stuff like that. But it's not like there's no like it's not like an a la carte kind of product. How did you go about one building up this your education site, and then how did you go f- about formatting the courses and what those should look like as a great, valuable experience? Yeah, I mean, one of like the most sort of for me, the my favorite parts about the tech industry and the kind of culture of technology is this idea of like iteration and building on stuff and like starting with an MVP and then you like build and build and build and build. So an MVP means minimum viable product just in case. Okay. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Thank you. So for I so the answer to your questions are yes, I did build it myself. I mean, I did hire Emily, who's the person I spoke about before, who's a developer. Um, She came on part time 
very early on to help me build it and then full time. And now she's still at Skillcrash as my director of product. So at this point, we have a, we, it's sort of like a design development and discovery team. And it is Emily, a, a front end developer, a back end developer, a QA, so a quality assurance tester, and two designers. So it's not a huge team, but it's a pretty, but it's like, I mean, it's a lot bigger than it started. But, you know, that has been a totally incremental process of adding, you know, a person slowly until we have the team that we have. And how about the formatting of the courses? Who was the guru behind <laughs> formatting courses that would be valuable and unlike anything else you could find on the internet? I mean, so you're looking at her to begin with. And then, of course, you know, you get to a point where you're like, okay, I need to hire someone who knows more than I do. Okay, now I have the money to do it. Yeah. So then I have hired people to both, I've hired both subject matter experts and then also curriculum design experts and sort of built up a really, you know, what we believe to be a really solid process of curriculum development. But to start off with, I mean, I think that to begin with, the differentiator of our curriculum was probably not kind of like curriculum fundamentals. And it was more about the tone and like the way in which we taught, right? Because I, like, in especially, I mean, no, I, I think this is actually true still today, honestly. Now we just also have the curriculum fundamentals to back up. Like, I feel like those are actually really rock solid now, eight years in. But eight years ago, yeah, I, it was like everything out there is, is really dry and boring and kind of like, quote unquote, like traditionally nerdy. And like, we weren't and we still aren't, right? Like, it's like, you know, chances are like a woman's going to teach you, which is actually like, there's a lot of data to back up, but that's really important for women's like female students that their instructor is a female in terms of their ability to like believe that they can learn the, the material when it comes to the, the computing sciences. But it's also just, yeah, we just talk, we try to speak in language that's as free of jargon as is possible for a tech education platform. It's really friendly. It's meant to be funny, like all of that kind of stuff. And that's just, that's still pretty unusual. How did you decide on the pricing? <laughs> How did you decide what to charge? So I had this kind of very early experience in launching the product where originally we were going to be, we re were really looking at like alinda.com as our model. And we were kind of thinking like, oh, we're going to make a website and it's going to have like 10,000 videos and like blah, 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 blah. But it's going to be like the friendly or hipper version of Linda. And for those of you who don't know Linda, it's an online education platform that LinkedIn acquired a long time ago. And you can learn everything on Linda pretty much. Well, not everything, but you can learn like graphic design or whatever. Just a bunch of like business skill sets. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a very early like technical education platform. Like back totally. when that was like not really. It thing, was like I the think. jam. It was like the only thing. It really I think, was. It really back was. in the day. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Cool. Yeah, and, it was, and it was. Yeah. Linda, she's a person. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, she's amazing. I mean, it's an amazing company. We should have Linda I, on the show one day. How did you figure out pricing? So originally that had been the plan. And I think, I forget what our exact pricing was, but we were looking at some sort of monthly, like $50 a month or something like that. Something, I think we basically were going to like rip off whatever Linda was doing at the moment. We launched a couple of like tutorials and videos for free thinking like that would be sort of like a loss leader. And then we would kind of like lure people in. And I had this really interesting experience where I started doing, I was trying to do some like market validation. So I was talking to the users and trying to find product market fit. And basically I like talked to all these different customers of mine at the time. And I could only get like one dude in Michigan. I just remember he was in Michigan who said that he would buy 
the product at whatever price point. I don't even remember what the price point was, but whatever price point I said. And I was like, there's a great SNL skit with Krista Wig that's called that goes it's a fur perfume. It's like red flag. And I just kept thinking like, this is my red flag moment. I was like, this is not going to work. <laughs> like the, the, my actual customers, like women in this age group looking to make a career change, et cetera. Like none of them were like, yeah, I'll buy that. They were all like, eh, it seems kind of expensive. I'm not really sure. So then I did a bunch of, I was like, okay, I'm going to stop. And we're going to like do like some actual discovery here and talk to some people. And basically what I, I started talking to them and asking them questions and trying to like understand more about what they were thinking about the whole thing. The challenge that I found that they were all sort of struggling with was this question of like, what do I learn? They were like, I know I want to make a career change. I'm ready, but like, I don't know where to start. And so then I started to follow up and be like, well, how did you solve that problem for yourself? Because I had heard and read that like, if they don't try to solve the problem for themselves, then it's not a problem you can monetize. So wait, 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 wait. Can you say that one more time? Because I think we all need to digest that. Yeah. So I believe this is something that is in the Lean Startup book. I forget exactly where I heard this, but it's basically the idea that any product is fundamentally you're designed to solve a problem that the consumer has, right? And so, but the thing is, there's like this whole question of like, are you a painkiller or a vitamin? And the idea is a painkiller is like something you like will desperately like need and it solves a real pain point. And so you'll pay like a lot of money for it. And vitamin is a nice to have. And so the question that you want to ask yourself or that you want to identify when you're sort of in early stages of development of a product is, are you a painkiller or a vitamin? And you want to be a painkiller fundamentally. That's how you're going to make more money. So, um, And what you said, is it, is it a problem that people have tried to already solve for themselves, but unsuccessfully? Well, or it could be successfully. That doesn't have to be a bad thing if they're able oh. to solve it. The key is that it's they're motivated enough by the pain that they will try to solve it themselves. And Got then it. the idea is that you're going to provide a solution that's better than whatever like alternative they have. Thank you. I just thought that was really important for everybody to absorb. It's something that we could all apply in, in our professional careers. Stick around. We'll be right back after the break. We would not be able to support and celebrate women in tech around the world if it weren't for you. Thank you so much for being a listener and a fan of the show. To contribute and donate, simply go to womenintech.fm on the upper right-hand side and click Donate, which empowers us to continue celebrating women in tech around the world. Thank you for being a part of our journey. So I was asking these people, like, what did you do to try to solve this problem of yours? And what I found is that the people I was interviewing, they split into two tracks. And I promise this does come around to the, the your question. I believe you. I think it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. And the two camps were people who tried to Google for the answer. So they would go to Google and be like, what should I learn to, if I want to learn to code? And then the other half of the people would ask a friend who knew more than they did. And what I found was that the people who tried to Google for the answer like to a person were not successful in finding an answer to their question and got stuck at that point and didn't move forward. And on the flip side, the people who asked a friend got a clear answer and were able to move forward. And the light bulb moment that I had at that moment then was, I can't just do be an online tutorial library. What I need to do is I need to provide actual guidance in the form of a human person that they can speak to to get guidance. And so what I did then was I repackaged the product and relaunched it. And so, sorry, and then to your pricing question, then what happened was, is that when I changed the product offering to that, the people who had been saying that like, 
I think it was a low price point. I want to say it was like $20 a month. The people who felt like that was too expensive, all of a sudden I was like, would you pay $99? And they were like, yeah, that seems like a steal of a deal for that same product. Like, even, even though they're paying 20, 99 was a steal of a deal. Yeah, like they felt like, like they were like 20 is too much. Literally, I was like, it's an online class and you're going to have an instructor who's there to answer all of your questions by email anytime, day or night. And they were like, oh, wow, not for only $99? Sign me up. So that was literally what we did. I think I actually charged $75 um, in the end because I think I got a little scared and didn't do $99. And then it's just been a process of like basically adding to the offering and upping the price. Pricing is so hard. And it's, it's, a, it's a heavy mix of like, is this sustainable for your business? At what point is it sustainable? Yeah, what is the, you know, how much are people going to pay? Is it too much? And, you know, and then like... I don't know if someone, if you know anybody who knows how to do this scientifically, I would love to talk to them. I mean, I do know a lot of people, but I think it wouldn't exactly help because I think every pricing model is different for every company. So I don't, I want to be very careful not to share um, inside trade secrets, but I know one startup who's profitable on their own, self-sustaining, no investment, and they had a monthly recurring. The monthly recurring did not work as effective as another model. I'm purposely being vague because I want to be really careful. It was not as effective as another pricing model that they tried. And so they let go of the recurring. Some people were bummed, but at the end of the day, it's profiting more consistently on this other style. I know with my, I could talk about it because of my own company, I did not do monthly. I did quarterly. That was important to the company operations, right? And so people were like, well, why don't you do monthly? And I didn't do monthly for a very specific reason. Mine is a culture-based product. And I thought the quarterly was very important. And also in serving the current members of the product, they said, we want to make sure people are the right culture fit. And you just can't match a culture fit in one month, you know? And so, yeah, we've had a similar thing, which is that we've tried selling subscriptions. So a monthly also, and literally like we were selling a product and I forget the exact price point, but it was something along the lines of, I I think it was $14.99 for to pay for a year upfront or $149 a month. And you could cancel anytime. And more people would buy the year upfront of $14.99 than $149 a month, even though they could cancel at any time. So like pricing is very confusing to me. It's like a totally irrational choice that they were making, but it was like they were more comfortable being like, no, I'm locking in 12 months. That makes me feel comfortable. Think about the author, Dan. I think you say his name, Dan Ariely, who wrote Predictably Irrational. I think it's such a great book. If you guys haven't checked that out, like we make emotionally charged decisions based on scarcity. I could even tell you with the podcast. So like very real, like for the Women in Tech podcast, we have a wait list into 2021. Like there are so many people who request to be on the show. Every so often there is a spot, you know, there's a schedule change or whatever, right? And a spot opens up. If I don't share that we have a wait list and this is like a rare opportunity, if I just say, hey, there's a spot, would you like it? Kind of like crickets, like people won't really act on it. They may like ghost for a few days or something. But the second I let them know about the wait list, which isn't even made up, it's a real thing, then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, get it for me, you know? There's just a thing about scarcity and like what we value and 
anchoring, like anchoring, like if if you already spend a hundred dollars a month at the gym and then another gym comes around that's fifty dollars a month, like you're gonna be like, whoa, that's a deal. But if you're in the Netherlands where gyms are thirty dollars a month and then another one comes around and says we're fifty, be like, I'm not gonna pay fifty. I have I could get it for thirty, right? So it's like it's a very unusual, emotionally charged, like yeah, it's it a lot. It definitely feels like it's an art, not a science for Completely. sure. Completely. Can you give us a landscape? Like how many people do you, have you had using your courses? Um, what kind of success have they had from your courses? Let's go there for a second. Yeah, absolutely. I think the latest count is somewhere in the like 18,000 students that have taken courses with Skill Crush. Crazy. Congratulations. Um, yes, yeah, totally awesome. And in terms of success, I mean, you know, the beauty of what we do is that it's like a very wide, like we don't have a one size fits all model in terms of what we push students into, which I think, which has its pluses and minuses for sure. And it, what's challenging about it is it makes it hard to answer these types of questions in like a pat way because. For us, it's very important that like the price point is accessible, that like we don't require people to have college degrees like some online coding camps do in order to do it. We don't require that people are in a specific geographic location, right? So people are all over the world. They come from all kinds of educational backgrounds. They have all kinds of different interests in terms of what they're going after. But I mean, yeah. And so within that realm, like we have just, it's really, really diverse, right? Like we have a lot of students who've gone on to full-time work at startups, at a lot of advertising agencies, digital agencies, that kind Kind of thing. We have a lot of people who've built up their own freelance businesses. We have people who've gone into like teaching coding. I mean, it really runs the gamut. That's awesome. How did you attract your initial students? This is funny. I haven't told this story in a really long time. So before, right before I started Skillcrush, we had actually tried to start a different business that was like more of a SaaS B2B business and it had like totally fallen on its face. And it was because like, we just, we didn't do any of the stuff that in retrospect we showed down around like market validation and that kind of stuff. And so when we were starting Scale Crash, I was like, I'm not going to make those same mistakes again. So I read Lean Startup and also read Running Lean, which has a lot of really good tactics around how to validate ideas really early. And one of the examples that they gave was basically creating a situation in which you feel like people or where you can kind of like force people to purchase your product, even if it's not for money, but like with something that's like valuable to them. And so a really good example of this is with an email address. Because that's like a piece of currency in the whole digital online world. And basically the premise is like if you can't get people to give you their email address, then like good luck to you. Um, so we were going to South by Southwest and we were like, okay, if we can't get people at South by Southwest to give us their email address for like a, a product about like learning more about technical things, then like there's no hope. And for those of you who don't know, South by Southwest is a huge annual conference that all the tech influencers go to in Austin. Yeah. So basically our plan was to take our iPads and go and like individually pitch people per, like face to face and see if they would give us their email. Like we'd make a purchase with us with their email address. Nice. Very gorilla. I know. It's so funny. I'm like, good for us. Yeah. So we, and we had this like astronomical number. We were like, we want a thousand email addresses. We basically just set out with our iPads and just started pitching people. And, it, and we went up to women because that was our target demographic. This was actually a good early signal too. We got like, I mean, our hit rate was like, like 80 or 90%. Like everyone gave us their email address. Of course, that only amounted to like 250 people or something. Cause it turns out it takes a lot of time to do this. Oh, totally. But that's <laughs> a lot of thousand, people. No, it was totally. But it was like our thousand leads goal was like completely unrealistic. So that was like the first little group. And then through that process, we ended up 
meeting somebody. I think we like must have pitched her or something. I don't remember exactly how it happened. But anyways, she turned out to write for Mother Jones magazine. And so she wrote about us in an article she was writing um, about women in tech and linked to our website. And this is like, we had like nothing. Like we had like a landing That's page so at that cool. point. Yeah. So that like gave us another 600 people. And then we started, we basically were like, okay, we got to do something with these email addresses. So we started sending them an email newsletter. And that was just an opportunity for us to like practice the voice because the voice is so important to the brand because we're talking about technical topics in like a fun and interesting way. So that just gave us like license to like enforce was a forcing mechanism for us to practice that. Um, And that slowly built up. And so I think by the time we actually kind of like launched our free product, which I mentioned earlier, we had gotten up to like 5,000 leads, which it's funny at this, like now looking back on it, I'm like 5,000 is phenomenal. And like, I should have been so happy. At the time, it was right after Codecademy had launched, and they had had this like code year thing go viral, and get they got like two hundred fifty thousand leads. So I was like, oh, "My five thousand is so puny." I was like so unhappy about it. <laughs> but it, so but I was like, five thousand was like way more. It's a lot more than you need, actually, as it turns out. Completely. So. And how do you transition those people to be paying customers? Was that difficult? Well, that that was the process I told you about, right? So that was this process of figuring out like how to iterate on the product until I could get anybody. And so, yeah, so then it was like this process of, I launched that first paid version and I think I capped it at 25 people to speak to urgency. That really worked. And I think I ended up selling 28 slots. And then it was just, you know, then it's just rinse and repeat and practice and like get it wrong a bunch of times. I mean, I definitely, then we went through this process where it was like, we made like, you know, I think we made like, 3,000 one month, then we made 5,000. And in my head, I was like, we're going to go three and then five and then eight and then 16 and then 20. And you know what I mean? And like, yeah, and actually totally. it was like three and then five and then like three and then two and then one. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, oh no. And that was around the like negative dollars in the bank account moment. So then that was like the moment for me where I had to really get my stuff together and be like, I don't understand this whole sales and marketing thing at all. Like I can make a product I can deliver, I can build the website, like I can do that part, but the sales and marketing is hard and it's hard to do it repeatedly. So then I went through a whole period of learning a lot about sales and marketing, which to be honest with you, eight years in, I'm like, I'm still learning a lot about sales and marketing. Sales and marketing is really hard. You touched briefly on even when you make a lot more money, you have a different set of challenges just to kind of give everybody an awareness of what they have to look forward to. What are some of those challenges that come with when you think like, you know, when you start, you're like, if I have this amount, then everything will be fine at that point. You're like, hi, headline. It's actually not. There's just a new set of challenges. So like, what do we have to look forward to? Yeah, I think the biggest challenges are just related to managing people and growing the company in terms of staff, because like, that's beautiful and like amazing. And like, listen, like the, like, everything is higher quality now than it used to be. No question, right? Like the designs are better, the videos are better, the curriculum is better, the support's better, like everything is better than it was back in those days when it was like me and two other people. But when like we're 25 right now, which is actually not the largest we've been. And I actually really appreciate not being as big as we've been in the past. And that has to do with a lot of like figuring out efficiencies and stuff like that, because managing a big team is hard. It creates all kinds of complexities and different personalities and man, you know, and everybody, and I mean, think about, oh my gosh, during a crisis, I mean, forget it. Like there's just, there's just a lot and it's wonderful. And I absolutely adore my team members and all it's not that it's just that like, it's a lot of responsibility, right? And then all of a sudden, like the money you're making, it's like, yeah, you're making 
hundreds of thousands, let's say a month, but it's like, you better make it. Like, what if you don't make it one month? Right. Like, or like, I mean, it's horrible. Like what just happened to like businesses all over the country. Right. Like in my worst catastrophic fantasies, I could not have predicted what just happened to so many businesses. None of us. could. It's crazy. Did you say you have 25 on your team? Mm hmm. I mean, that's a lot of people to oversee. I mean, online courses are like the new, new all of a sudden. Like, did you see a a huge inflow of people wanting to study code because of what's happening? Yeah, we have. And also, I mean, what I especially love is that it's really sparked our, our existing students to like double down. So the support team is like working overtime. And that's great. Like, I mean, I think, you know, I really like I was on this webinar earlier and I was quoting this Rahm Emanuel quote, which maybe you've heard. And I actually think it's interesting because I'd heard the quote, the quote starts off with never let a good crisis go to waste, which I think is a great quote, but actually the rest of the quote is really important because it says never let a good crisis go to waste because it it gives you the opportunity to do things you once thought were impossible. And I think that second part is actually as important. And I think that's what I'm really seeing with my students is that usually when we are enrolling students, students tend to have a lot of concerns, which is totally understandable. They're worried that they're too old, that they can't hack it, that they're not going to be able to make it without a computer science degree. All of those concerns are totally understandable and valid. But what I think is really beautiful about this crisis moment is that I think it really melts away a lot of those concerns because you're like, I have to figure out how to make this work. And that's a great opportunity. Completely. One last question I have. I mean, I could ask you so many questions. I want to get into like, how did you overcome going from three founders to just you? Like, there's just so much we could get into, but we don't have like the infinity of day. So one selfish question I'm going to ask is I have a personal hobby that I love tech tools. What is your favorite tech tool? Let it be mobile app or hardware or website or software. What's your fave? I feel like I'm like such a boring developer here, but I feel like literally the two most used tech tools I have is like the notes app, which I love that it, I can go from my computer to my phone and they reconcile. 100%. This yeah. is like amazing for me. And yes. I like sit in bed and like make myself to do lists. And then the other one is like, I'm totally, I'm like such a geek, but I love Jira, which is an Atlassian product. Do they own Slack now? Did I make that up? No. Yeah, no, it was the other way I'm around. Not sure, but I know their chat product. Anyways, they do own Trello. So, but it's basically like a really, really clunky project management tool that developers use that like it has like a horrible learning curve. I wouldn't even necessarily recommend it, but it's like once you've like made it through that, you're like I'm like so I'm like Jira forever. I will use it for everything <laughs> forever. So I really love what you shared earlier about, you know, forging ahead with making the possible possible in the time of crisis. Is there something else that that comes to you, some guidance that someone's given you along your path that has really stuck with you? I had a really good moment a couple of years ago where I kind of came to a little bit of a crisis myself because I think when you're starting a startup, it's very common that you kind of just like run on adrenaline and you just like you know, and you kind of like scale mountains and all these things. And that's great. But there just gets to a point where like, you can't drive forward with that anymore. Like, it's just not sustainable. Um, And I definitely hit that, you know, I think probably like maybe three years ago, I was just like, I'm exhausted. And I had operated under this belief, like it was always this idea, like, oh, once we launch this new class or this new feature, I hire this new person, it's all going to be different. Or we like hit this revenue milestone. And then every time you get there, you're like, yeah, now welcome. Like you got rid of one problem. Here's a bigger problem for you to deal with. 
And it got to the point where it was kind of demoralizing. And I was like, wait, this is like not fun anymore. I, I, I can't, I don't believe in the fantasy that anything's going to get easier. And I actually, it's funny. I mean, this is not something somebody said to me, but it's actually something I read in a book called The Tools. It's by these two like celebrity therapists. Gwyneth Paltrow is all about them. <laughs> but <laughs> it really is a great book. And the thing it basically, it's all these like tools that you can use the psychological tools to like help yourself. And then at the end, the very last chapter is about like how to motivate yourself to continue to use the tools. And what it says is that like, it basically describes this thing that we all can relate to and what they, they call it the exoneration fantasy. And it's basically this idea that like, that there will be a point at which you will have no problems, right? Like we all live with this fantasy. Like if I just made a million dollars, if I just won the lottery, if I just you know, got married, if I just, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, like, I won't have any problems anymore. And like, that fundamentally is like, we all have to like, let go of that idea, because that's not reality. There will, there will never be a point in your life where you don't have challenges and problems to deal with. That's life. Like, welcome to life. It never goes away. And that was really, really impactful for me and really changed my whole relationship to my business, but honestly, my life. And it really helped me to like realize like, I don't know. I mean, at first it was really hard because I was like, oh crap, this means that like none of the things I'm like hoping will change everything will change everything. But it also just like, (laughs) I don't know, it just gave me a much deeper, richer, less sort of juvenile or like basic understanding of like what we were doing, you know what I mean? And what the goal was and like how we were going to get there. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. Totally. I don't know. Two two last questions. One is how can people connect with you? Are you on LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn. Ada, A-D-D-A, and then Birnier, B-I-R-N-I-R. And you can just hit me up on LinkedIn. Are you on social? Can they connect with you on social? What's good for you? Yeah, I, I'm on Instagram. I, I, I'm Ada Bjork, so B-J-O-R-K, like the singer. It also happens to be my middle name because I am Icelandic. I'm not super active on social, I will admit, but I do check it, so... And be sure to check out Skill Crush all over social and go to it's skillcrush. Is it com? Yep. Where did you come up with the name Skill Crush, by the way? Is it just crushing a skill? Yep, exactly. Well, it's crushing, but also like having a crush on a skill. We thought it was like kind of a double. Aww, yeah. That I was like it. one of those, you know, our, the three co-founders or the two other co-founders and I like fought about that for many months. And it was literally the, the name we all hated the least at the end of all the names that we discussed, but I've come to really love it. So, I mean, that's a conversation I'm like dying to get into, but I know it will make it so much longer to, you know, how, how you migrated through the whole co-founder post three co-founder to just you. But I think we'll save that for another time. One last question I have, I just think it's really cool to ask is, You said that you've been with your husband since he was your boyfriend when you started and he was supportive through the whole journey of you being an entrepreneur in a partnership. What would you say is the one thing to look for in your partner that makes it possible to be a driven, powerful businesswoman and still have a great, loving, fulfilling relationship? I had a friend who worked for Al Gore for a long time and I was really surprised when Al Gore got a divorce. And I asked him about it because I was like, it's weird that Al Gore got a divorce when Bill and Hillary are still together, right? Like you wouldn't expect that. And what he said, which I thought was really interesting and I think relates to this question is he was like, the thing you have to realize about Bill and Hillary is that for all the problems that they have, 
like they each, if you look at their relationship, have had moments where they're in the spotlight and then they've each had moments where they've taken a back seat and let the other person be in the spotlight. And I think, whereas his argument was that that is not what happened with Al Gore and his wife. And I think right. like, regardless of politics, I just think that's a really interesting idea that I think you have to, you have to be willing to like take a seat back seat sometimes. And then you also have to have a partner who's willing to take a back seat sometimes. Uh, I actually love that. It's something I hear a lot about, not just politicians, but celebrities as well, that sometimes celebrities break up because one gets super famous and then the dynamics are off. Yeah. And I think, I think the key here is that like, I would say like with a celebrity example, it's like the super famous one has to also recognize when it's time for them to like dial it down a little bit and really make sure that the other one has the opportunity to like really build up their career to shine. Yeah. A hundred percent. Thank you so much for hanging out with the women in tech podcast. This has been awesome. I'm like, you know what? I keep leaving everyone on the cliffhanger. I'm just going to take two more minutes. Is there, is there a, kind of like a key principle or a key takeaway? How did you find resolve going from three to one, like just some kind of thing. So I don't leave everybody like hanging on their seats. I think in a way, like this is one of those examples of like, if what doesn't break you makes you stronger. And I th- so I think there was like, it was extremely difficult. But I think after you go through something harrowing like that, and like, one founder breakup was very amicable, the other one not as much. And I think the, especially the fact that the second one wasn't as amicable, that actually kind of like deepened my resolve, because it's like, once you fight for something so hard, then you're not going to just like fail on it. I love that answer. Thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast to connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women in tech around the world. Remember, go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Takes you straight there. Say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will talk to you guys, see you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. This is Autumn Renier. I am the founder and CEO of Skill Crush, the online education company with a heart. Coming to you from Queens, New York, and you are listening to Women in Tech. Hi, this is Arlen Hamilton, author of It's About Damn Time, How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage. And you're listening to We Are LA Tech. I feel so grateful I've had the privilege of getting an advanced copy of Arlen Hamilton's new book, It's About Dan Time. She is one of the most inspiring venture capitalists I've ever come across. Her story from having absolutely nothing and being completely broke to being one of the most influential venture capitalists in the world blows my mind. And her book is insanely well-written. Right when I picked it up, I didn't want to put it down. She teaches me and us how to become the asset, how to be our best selves, and how to be a person that not only creates opportunity for ourselves, but creates an abundance of opportunity for others. I'm so proud to share her book with you, and I hope you'll pick it up. And I know for sure you'll be just as riveted as I was with each page you turn. Get It's About Damn Time at itsaboutdamntime.com. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. Community spotlight coordination by Sarah Tran. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. 
Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.